Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. Good morning, good morning, and welcome back to Saturday Mornings with Joy Keys. I was away, vacation. You know, everybody needs a little vacation, so I took a little break. But I'm back, and Happy New Year to everyone. Um, happy Holidays post <laughs> to everyone. I hope you guys <laughs> had a good time during the, the holidays. Um, you can follow me on Twitter, at Joy Keys. Also, check me out on Facebook, Saturday Mornings with Joy Keys. And on Instagram, Saturdays with Joy Keys. I'm not on TikTok yet. I, I, it's pulling me, but I'm not there yet. <laughs> you can also email me, Saturdays with Joy Keys at hotmail.com. I would love to hear from you. And you can donate on PayPal, Saturdays with Joy Keys. Did I say that again? Saturdays with Joy Keys. Yes, that's the running theme right there. Um, but this morning, wow, I was, she was telling me she was excited to be on my show, and I was telling her I was excited to have her. You know, when I have people on the show that interview people, it's, I, I'm like a little nervous, you know. It's different than people who don't interview. Not, not that they're less than, but these people that interview people, they are constantly thinking about questions. They're doing their research, um, delving into the subtext of a human being. And that's kind of what I try to do, and it makes me a little nervous sometimes. So I try to do my homework as best I can. This person is an award-winning journalist and novelist. She's uh, written uh, two novels before the one we're going to talk about today. She's a former columnist and reporter for the Chicago Tribune. She spent a decade and a half writing about race, politics, and people whose stories are often dismissed and ignored. Uh, She served as a 2000. 17 and 2018 juror for the Pulitzer Prize and commentary, has written commentary for the Washington Post, PBS NewsHour, CBS Sunday Morning, and, uh, and a host of other places. I don't want to continue the list. Um, but she also spoke to Barack Obama. Imagine that. Um, <laughs> she has um, reported from around the world, Australia, China, France, Ghana, she spent a school year um, as a Neiman Journalism Fellow at Harvard, Harvard, um, and so much more. Her book titles that she wrote before, Only Twice I've Wished for Heaven. Only twice? I think I've wished a couple more times. But And her <laughs> other book, An uh, Eighth of August. Uh, but this book we're talking about, Three Girls from Bronzeville, Welcome Author Dawn Turner. Good morning. Yay, it's a pleasure. Good morning. Thank you for having me, Joy. <laughs> oh, wow. Uh, again, I'm honored. Um, I'm excited. We were just having an amazing conversation right before the show yes. started, and I think I'm just going to start with that. We were talking about how structures and physical environments affect people's mental health, uh, physical health. Um, you know, we think about environmental justice and pollution all those things are connected. Dawn, how does your book deal with structures and physical environments and its impact on people's health? 
physical or mental. Thank you so much again for having me, Joy. Um, Three Girls from Bronzeville is my memoir, and it tells the story of three girls who are starting out together um, in a brand-new apartment complex. It's the Theodore K. Lawless Gardens apartment complex in the Bronzeville neighborhood of Chicago, a very storied neighborhood. And my sister Kim, my best friend Deborah and I were coming of age in the afterglow of the civil rights movement. And it was a moment when our parents believed that this country was finally amenable to giving us um, some of the advantages that it had denied generations of black folks. And so this new, bright, shiny apartment complex was to be part of our reward. Um, It was a 24-story building, three towers, and, I mean, janitors chased down garbage with a religious fervor. Um, The the playgrounds were bright and shiny. But we were right across the street from a public housing project named after the same Ida B. Wells, um, the anti-lynching activist and journalist. And we had a bird's-eye view um, just right across the street of how the systems um, in the public housing project did not work the way that they did work uh, in our apartment uh, complex. And so it was just, it was a very stark difference. We were all the same people. We were, maybe the people across the street, maybe they were a little on average, maybe they were, had, a, had a little less uh, money, N- not a whole lot. But it was just a very mm-hmm. stark difference in terms of, you know, what happens when you live in a place that's, you know, very well maintained, um, that's cleaned regularly, and, and where the, the elevators um, work. Uh, and, 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 and so it's how, how do you comport yourself? How do you walk through the world when you live in that place compared to a place where that is suffering such decay? Uh, and and that is that's one of the themes. It's one of the the um, that's something that I wanted to get to in in the book about three girls who um, you know who start out in this place. Yeah, another um, time in the book when um, you happen to go to college with your friend Thomas, and you see the land and and, and there. I think that's another moment also where you can see the stark difference. And when you go to um, your friend David's house and see where they live, you know, what what was your feeling about that? Tell the audience about when you saw where David lived. Well, I think that so many kids in the leaguer communities, and this was the case back then, and I think it's true now, where there, it's a challenge to, to even get out of the community. And so your frame of reference is very limited in terms of what the world looks like. Um, That wasn't the case for me growing up because uh, with my church, we did a lot of traveling around the country, actually, Mm -hmm. and the world. I was going to say that. Um, Yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah, Mm -hmm. you know, on on the gospel tour in the summers. But just for Mm -hmm. me, um, seeing... Uh, when I left uh, my community to visit my friend David, he would become my husband, and just to see where he lived. He lived in a community in Chicago called Beverly, and it's a lovely place with gorgeous homes, um, upper middle class, and he was at the time one of the few black families in that community. But just to see his home, I remember walking to the foyer and walking into the, the house and just, I was just, 
you know, I was amazed. And not that I had never seen a, a, a beautiful home before, but black people live there. And his father mm-hmm. was an executive at um, at a at an insurance a black insurance company, and his mother had an MSW. Um, she worked for the Department of Children and Family Services here in in in, in Chicago in the in the state, um, Illinois, and and they were upwardly middle class. Um, their two older sons were in college at, at black universities, and David, who was my friend, I met him in high school. Um, I, I, the first time I visited him was we were working on a project together. We were in a special program um, at the University of Chicago. So we went to high school at Hyde Park uh, Academy, but we also took classes at the university as part of like this college-bound program. And that's where we right. met. And we were working on a project. And I was just, I could hardly work on the project because I, was, I couldn't stop looking at the house. And, and it was, I mean, for a kid... It was just being, it was like being in heaven, you know? And, and yes. what happens when you do have these exposures, you, and you see people who look like you, who are in places where, that you can aspire to be, then that is so important to how we grow and develop as, as young people. We can even take this a little further back because um, I hate to talk about, but since we start talking about land and structures, um, Thinking about the idea of a home, what does home mean, and further even back, your family had actually a large home, if you will, via your grandfather. Um, do you want to talk to the audience about your father's father and his oh, yeah. home? Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, no, you're absolutely right. My, my my grandfather, and this is a story that my father would tell me late, years later. My father, owned, my grandfather owned 160 acres in um, Mississippi, and he owned it in 19 in the, the 1920s, which was kind of unheard of. And he drove an, an expensive car. And at the time, um, the, there were a group of white people in in the town where he was living who said, you know, you you can't do this. You can't. A black man can't drive. And I think it was just a a, a Model T. It was a Ford. But um, he said, you can't drive a car like this in here. And so my grandfather hired a black man to drive him around. Um, and it was just a story about coming from a people who were able to make a way out of no way. Uh, my grandfather was very forward thinking in, in his way of even, um, he had a group of people who were working for him, and he didn't want them to be cheated in the way that sharecroppers were during that time. Right. And so he wanted to do that, um, to, to have workers live in a way that was much more humane and that they were able to actually make money as opposed to, you know, at the end of their sharecropping time, you know, use their money to pay off all of these debts. So it was, um, and they had a a number of houses on the property, but my father grew up in this beautiful um, home and, you know, at a time when that was kind of unheard of. In, I mean, it, it, wasn't, I mean, I mean, it, it was absolutely it was unusual. amazing. It was unusual. Uh, oh, my God. Yeah. When I read this story, uh, when you got to that point, and I was like, he, what, what? And he got a bank loan. <laughs> She's not telling you this part. Yes. He got a bank loan. Yes. A black man got a bank loan during the Depression. It, right. I, I was just like, yeah. what did she? I had to read again. I said, wait, maybe I didn't read that correctly. Maybe he got a white person to get the line. I was like, let me go back. Well, I mean, I was the journalist in me, 
Right. He had to go back and get the deed, and I have the deed. And my um, my cousin, who is a judge, uh, he's retired now. He's also a minister. He walked me through a lot of um, all, a lot of that information. He actually has done a lot of our historical, you know, ancestry type. Um, he's gone back and done a lot of research in that regard. But he was just such a font of information um, and and how. You know, a, a lot of what we have relied on as a, period, as a people over the years is a combination of being, um, being incredibly savvy, being lucky, <laughs> being blessed, mm-hmm. um, and just being, just, just being crafty, you know, just in a, in a very positive way. And how do we make these, these pieces that don't want to fit and often don't want to, how do we make them fit together in a way that we can begin to build, you know, wealth right now, but then generational wealth. And, yeah, and you know, exactly. that's been something that's been incredibly difficult um, for us. It has. Well, you can see, I mean, that your father was telling you they had to sell off many pieces of the land. And so it, it was, a, it right. was like, why, like, I was like, well, where's the, where's the land? Why are they not living there? Like, you know, <laughs> you know, right, right. Uh, that's the, like what comes well, to your mind, but you know, all those, go ahead. Yes, I'm sorry. I, I do have one cousin who has like a sliver, who has retained a sliver of, of the property, but a lot of the property, you're right, has been sold off. Yeah. Now, another structure we can talk about uh, along the story is called Three Girls. So I'm sure people are like, okay, well, they're talking about all these spaces and stuff. But, <laughs> but another space, I mean, we're just keeping with the theme here, another space was your room when you were growing up and you grew up with a sister and you had to share a room. What are some fond memories um, from from that room uh, that you have, you could share with the audience. Oh my goodness, yeah. Um, and I'll I'll bring in Deborah and Kim at this moment. Um, so I met my sister mm-hmm. in 1968 when I was three years old, and and from the beginning she was a mystery mystery to me. Wait, wait. Fearless. I like how you said that, Dawn. Yeah. I like how you said, I met my sister. You know, <laughs> we, we had an appointment, and um, they were like, yeah. you know. Now here comes someone introduced us. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, yes, go ahead. I mean, go ahead. Well, it, it almost felt, it felt like this. This um, it wasn't an invasion. My parents brought our parents brought her home, and from the beginning, you know, it was that kind of classic story of you're the only child for a while, and then all of a sudden mm-hmm. there's this intruder. Um, but she was she was a mystery to me from the beginning. Um, and that was my sister, Kim. But Deborah, my best friend, I met her in the second grade. And initially, um, she, I mean, she was just, she also was a mystery. And she was the, the I'll just say, the, the, one of the, the baddest kids in the, the school. She was also prom <laughs> queen. She was, you know, she was always, always getting into trouble. And I was so attracted to that because I was, I was not getting into trouble. But she was yeah, you also were a good prom Yes, yes. Well, I, I mean, you know, I, or maybe a little sly. I wasn't as obvious with, um, but, but you're right. I mean, we were just these opposites. And she was also beautiful. She wore the perfect outfits and the perfect hair, matching hair ribbons. And she was stunning, even at that age. But we became best friends in the third grade. In the second grade, we were in the same class. But we were arranged according to height, and I was the tallest kid in the class, and she was the shortest, and our world <laughs> barely touched. <laughs> but in the third grade, we were arranged alphabetically, Deborah Trice across from Dawn Turner. And, mm. wow, that one logistical shift 
changed everything. We became best friends, and we learned we had so much in common. We had both had um, one sibling, a sister. Hers was older, mine was younger. And the other mm-hmm. thing that was just, I mean, I think fate, that we lived in that same apartment building, a same apartment complex, the same apartment building. And out of all of the, out of, um, the 24 floors, out of all of those apartments, she happened to live in the apartment directly above mine. And her bedroom was directly above mine, which, you know, let again, me tell you something. Me, that was fate. Let me tell you something. It was so amazing, so many similarities. Like, I really felt like I was your sister because um, <laughs> my best friend, we lived, like, above and below each other, and, and it was a duplex. Um, I used to also hide under the table. Uh, you used to hide under the table, the dining room table, and that's another idea. Yes, like, why, why, yeah, why were you hiding under the table, Dawn? Tell the, tell the audience what was that all about. Well, but I'll, I'll just for a second, I'll go back to the bedroom because go back I to, would yeah, not. So I, I shared a room with my sister, but I would knock on my ceiling and Deborah would knock on her floor and we would communicate across the divide. And so, but, mm-hmm. and so, so I, but my sister and I, we grew up in this family of storytellers. I'm certain you did as well. And so we got to hear the best stories after family gatherings. My sister and I would hide under the dining room table where the women would remain seated. The men would go off in some other place to talk, but the women would sit at the table, the women being my mother, my grandmother, and my aunt, and, and maybe there would be another woman. Um, but they would sit there and reminisce or gossip, and their stories had perfect pitch in terms of timing and the way they developed characters, and those stories just came alive. And we would sit there and listen, and they would speak in coded language. So, you know, initially mm-hmm. we didn't understand everything, but as we got older and we started to like, what? <laughs> they were talking about <laughs> so-and-so. And we would put those, you know, we would start to understand the dimensions of those stories and they just came alive for us. And so we would, I, you know, as my sister and I got older and, you know, became teenagers and, and we just started to understand them better as well. And they were my fort, my mother, my grandmother, my aunt. Um, the men were important. And I, in, in, in this story, I wanted to tell a story to, about black men, and I wanted them to be, you know, more than one-dimensional caricatures. Um, but the women, uh, you know, I, they, were, they were my heart. Well, you do talk about the men, and um, you talk about fathers. Um, you talk about lovers. Um, you talk about their history, um, you know, and how their history impacted you and, and, and say, even Deborah, her relationship with her father. Um, as yeah. Later in the book, uh, her father does pass away, and, and later in the book, though, she does say she wished her father, she was closer, and you were like, but you didn't get along with him. But, you know, all kids right. kind of buck up against their parents, but when you, when you look back, right. I even remember thinking, you know, wow, if um, – I thought the same, a similar thought, too, because my father, um, unfortunately, had um, some addiction issues, and he wasn't mm-hmm. around. And I was thinking, you know what, if he was there or stricter or more present, um, maybe I, I would have been saved from certain things because um, mm-hmm. just of his physical presence and, you know, the fear of not wanting to go against that. You know what I mean? You, you only go so right. far 
when, when with the dads, you you might push the moms a little more, but the dads, you're kind of like, okay, I'm not, I'm not going, I'm not going to push that any further. Um, <laughs> but in the book, you have a lot of lovely relationships, but a lot of them you lose. And one of mm-hmm. the themes is death. I would say in the book, um, you, you talk about race and fate, but death is there um, and renewal. Mm-hmm. How did you? Yes. Can, how can you talk to the audience about your renewal after the deaths of friends and family? Oh, um, I just think that it's part of. I mean, that's that's the part of life that we don't get to um, get out of, and we don't get to to you know to really change. Um, but I think that one of the things that, that I've been very fortunate to have over my, over, over my, during my lifetime is just an incredibly strong family structure in terms of a network of people um, who, um, who, who I could turn to. And I think that there are a lot of kids or a lot of adults, people who don't have that, and, and that is, so it's something that's so necessary in terms of our ability to overcome the challenges because we're going to have that. You know, even in lives that are just, you know, kind of charmed, um, we are going to have those challenges. And the way we survive them, the way that we get beyond them is to have people, to have our people, um, you know, who can uh, just help us through. And when I say people, when you have your people, whoever they are, whether they're friends or their family, um, I'll go back to the, the, the triad, the, my mother, grandmother, and aunt. Um, but my father and I had a very complex relationship, but I always knew that in a pinch, I could, you know, I could find him and I could, I, he, would, he would come through. Um, now, he wouldn't necessarily, he missed some of the important um, moments in yeah, my life, graduation, my yeah, wedding. Exactly. Um, yeah. Right. But, but when, in, and so that, so we, as I said, we had a very complicated relationship, but I always knew where to find him, even though I didn't always know how to reach him. Um, and mm-hmm. and, and that, mm-hmm. there is that, that little distinction there. Um, but when we, years later, we would have this long um, conversation over several weeks and months, and I, I felt very closer, I, I felt closer to him because of that. But, but as, as, as I know you know, that we, when we're dealing with whatever type of trauma it is, that the only way we are able to, to get beyond, to, to, to deal with it in that moment and then to get beyond it is to have people who can help us. And they provide different types of help. And that's how, you know, I did it, and that's how most people do it. Um, one of the things you also talk about is reconciliation um, yes. from tragedies. Uh, your friend Deborah, even though you're in the same space, if we go back to that theme, um, growing up in the same building, uh, she, she had to move away at one point, but um, she still had her family, and she ended up in the space of prison. And yes. um but somehow there was reconciliation there. And oh that God, was an amazing yes. thing, you know, and brought, made me think about in South Africa and reconciliation trials and, and things of that apartheid, nature. Apartheid, yeah. Apartheid. Yeah. Do you think we can have reconciliation here in America for slavery? You, you see, oh, I mean, um, that, in terms of, yes. Um, well, I mean, I don't, I mean, that's a, that's a, I, I, do I think we can or we should? I think we should. 
Um, okay. I think especially right now we're in a moment in our country where it's so, you know, there's so, it's so riven with, um, I mean, you know, we're so polarized and there's so many different subjects that separate us. But, um, but in terms of Deborah and going to prison and, and she went to prison for, for murder and that reconciliation meeting in 2018 um, was, uh, as you said earlier, I have interviewed a lot of, um, a lot of different types of people, and, and I've sat in on a lot of, um, a lot of conversations that are, that are incredibly challenging. But that moment in the prison while I was there with Deborah and her victim's family, um, the victim's daughter and the victim's um, wife, it, it was one of the most um, moving experiences of my life uh, because the idea of forgiveness, being able to forgive someone who has taken someone from you, um, it's, it, you know, forgiveness in theory works really well, but forgiveness in practice is a whole other thing. And, and to sit in on that and to listen to, um, to people say, I vowed that I would not come here to say I forgive you until I meant it. Uh, and I have so much regard, such such high regard for um, for Terry Jones, the widow, and Whitney Jones, and their son. Uh, I'm sorry, um, Terry's son, uh, Jalen. The three of them and who were left the mother, And the mother, the mother of the victim oh God, actually Jones. was the spearhead, yeah. I think, you know, of the reconciliation from like the week after the trial almost. Or so. I felt like, I mean, it just seemed well, pretty Well, from bad. the very beginning. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, that's so true. back there in mm-hmm. 2000. Um, and so it was, you know, it took nearly 20 years for, the, for Deborah to meet the other relatives. But you're absolutely, absolutely right. Margaret Jones forgave Deborah immediately. And I had a conversation with her because I wrote a story about Deborah that ran right after her trial and conviction. And I wanted to get someone from the family in the, in the, in the actually it was, an, um, it was an opinion piece. And, and I remember talking to her, to, talking to Margaret Jones, sitting at my desk in the newsroom with a framed photo of my daughter um, staring back at me. And, and I'm just sitting there trying to understand how someone can forgive, could forgive the person who took her child away. And, mm-hmm. and, and that is, you know, again, you know, we all, we, we'd like to think that we can forgive, especially depending on your religion, you know, as a Christian, I mean, that's one of the, the cornerstones of, the, of, of Christianity. And, and, but to put it in practice again, especially when it's, it's about your child, that's, you know, that's it's a whole other level. You, you, you rethink status or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I don't know. I don't know myself. I thought, you know, I have a daughter too, and I was just thinking like, and, and you know, that's just a fear of, you know, my daughter, but she lived in New York City for a while, and I was just, I remember when she first moved there, like, I was like really nervous, even though we've gone to New York a lot, so it wasn't like a, like an over really like crazy scariness, because, you know, she moved train sure. and this and that, it wasn't like that. But it was still just her, no matter where she went, just she was not in my reach, you know, so to speak. So I was, I was fearful I as a parent, you know, losing. Oh, now, yeah. we're coming close to time. So, I mean, I would love to talk to you for like another hour or two. But yeah. um, <laughs> what are you doing next after this Three Girls of Bronzeville? This is such a, a really awesome uh, piece of work. Uh, it's about your life. What, what are you going to do next? 
Oh, um, thank you, uh, Joy. I am working on a novel, and I'm just going from nonfiction to fiction. Um, because <laughs> it, I just felt like I needed a change of mental scenery, and, and mm. I am so excited about my next project. I'm not quite ready to talk details, but okay. it is, um, I'm, it's enthralling. I'm in it, and um, I'm just, I, I can't wait to, you know, I can't wait to, to introduce it to the world. Well, I can't wait to hear about it and see it, and maybe you'll come back to talk about it. Maybe? I'd be honest. <laughs> oh, okay. Oh Please invite me. Please invite me. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, you have a wonderful weekend. Um, stay warm and cozy and drink hot chocolate or tea. <laughs> um, and, <laughs> thank and you. Thank you again you for coming on the show. It's my great pleasure. Thank you, Joy. Okay. All right. Talk to you later. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in. Um, If you're just tuning in, I just spoke with author Dawn Turner, award-winning journalist and novelist. This is her third book. This is a memoir. It's called Three Girls from Bronzeville. I'll be giving away some copies, so you want to check me out on Twitter, at Joy Keys. Also check me out on Facebook, Saturday Mornings with Joy Keys, and on Instagram, Saturdays with Joy Keys. Stay tuned. I'm going to be speaking with Bria Henderson from The Good Doctor. Wonder if you should get tested for colorectal cancer? Well, it's the second leading cancer killer in the U.S., so if you're 50 or older, it's time. Screening helps find precancerous polyps so they can be removed. Remove the polyp, prevent the cancer. Did you know there's more than one screening test? Talk to your doctor to find the one that's right for you. No more excuses, because colorectal cancer screening really does save lives. A message from HHS and CDC's Screen for Life campaign. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.